Well, we're going to open our Bibles this morning and take a look at John 14, 6. What did Jesus mean when he said, I am the truth in front of you, the reality before your eyes? But before we do that, take a look at this picture on the screen. Did any of you guys see that shot a couple of weeks ago when there was a big storm that went through Washington, D.C. and lightning struck the Washington Monument? You could nod if you did. That would help me know. Okay, great. Jerry saw it. Uh, we're good now. Well, when I saw that picture, here's where my mind went. What a perfect caricature of our culture right now. It's kind of like we're just under attack from every direction that you can think of. We've even coined a new phrase, the new normal, right? I'm not sure I know what that means, but we should certainly hear it used in the media Maybe you even use it in conversations uh, with other friends. And I don't think we, we have to limit it to the pandemic, the pandemic and COVID-19, do we? You know, there's still danger in the world. You know, I wonder about China and North Korea and what's happening in the Middle East and with our country's relationships with Russia. Danger is still something we have to face. And then how about if we just come right here within the borders of our own country you know, the idea that there might be these giant divides in our own society between peoples of color. Uh, each of us may be having a different perspective on the outcome of that, riots and looting and what that necessarily means to our culture. You know, I'm 65 years old and I have to admit, when I saw the pictures in Seattle of what was going on there, I thought it was a joke. I actually thought it was like a movie set. Uh, and it got a little out of hand. And then I don't know if you've been following the news even since last evening, what transpired in Atlanta. I mean, these things just take my breath away. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure I know how to even respond to them. And I don't know if that's where you're at. Uh, but what it does cause me to reflect on is what happened to truth? You know, where did it go? It just kind of vanished uh, in our midst. I made a little list for myself uh, as it relates to the questions that we're now faced with that you never would have thought about prior to maybe three or four months ago. Like, is it safe for kids to go to school? Who'd have thought about that? Uh, should I wear a mask or not? I mean, I'm not sure most of us even knew where to buy a mask prior to three months ago. And then there's the perfect one. I experienced it this morning. Do I walk up to someone and shake their hand, or do I just stare at them awkwardly and wonder if I'm going to offend them by shaking their hand? Well, the shame is this is the reality today of the world we live in. Okay, I'm done venting. Got that out of my system at least for a moment. So moving on, here's a point I would make. You can't avoid it. How did all this happen? And for me, it begs the question, how are we Christians supposed to respond? What are we supposed to do? Well, in my humble opinion, which isn't worth much, here's the most common question right before our eyes. Is there such a thing as truth? Is there something we can count on for stability? How about for our personal safety? Maybe even being able to live without it feeling so divisive that you wonder when you leave your house, what could happen when I travel to the grocery store? These things are facing us today in our culture, and I think we underestimate the impact that culture is actually having on us. Now, truth can be a really fragile thing. Would you agree with me? It's, it's pretty easy to mislead, isn't it? 
Well, let me ask you for a minute to think about that photo that I showed you of the lightning strike on the Washington Monument. I've got to confess to you coming right out of the block, so you may turn me off after this. I didn't tell you the truth. That actually wasn't a picture of the lightning strike two weeks ago. That was one from three or four years ago. Now, it was a lightning strike. It just wasn't the one that happened a couple of weeks ago. You see how easy it is to mislead people? I did it just with a photograph without much more than that. Well, moving away from the truth can be subtle. You know the old adage of a frog boiling in a pot? Well, I've tried to to take that and blow it out into this image that's on the, the screen behind us. I want you to think about things like, what if you just leave out a little bit of information intentionally so that you can change a message? Ever done that? Ever thought about doing that? My favorite's plausible deniability. To think that it's okay not to tell someone what they need to know just so they can admit they didn't know it. Well, this is, this is us. This is what we do in this world. Sadly, uh, it begs the question, who can you trust? And that's what I want to try and unpack a little bit this morning. And we don't need to go any further than Genesis chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, take a look there quickly. In the first five verses of Genesis chapter 3, we're introduced to the original lie. You know, the serpent comes to Eve, and his question, paraphrased, is basically, did God tell you the truth? That's all he's asking of her. Now, it frames this point that I'm making, I think, perfectly. Now, verbatim, his question is this. Has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? I mean, it's basically him looking at Eve and saying, hey, maybe you misunderstood. Like, maybe God didn't really mean what you think you heard. And isn't that how it works? Just interject cloudiness and doubt to something that you think is true. Well, this is the way Genesis begins when we begin to understand a lie. Now, what's also interesting is if you look back at Genesis chapter 2 in verses 16 and 17, Adam and Eve had been told directly by God what the truth was. Look what those texts say. From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. While God's instruction to them is clear and concise, let me sum it up this way. Do this, don't do that, and if you choose to do what I told you don't do, know there will be consequences. It's kind of how the truth works. But in this case, doubt had been cast in Eve's heart. The serpent follows up, not now with just cloudiness, a direct lie. He says in this text, you surely shall not die. Well, have you ever had someone say to you, I didn't do it? Mm -hmm. Maybe you were the one that said, I didn't do it, and you did. Well, if either of those two things are true for you, then you understand this. You know, it didn't seem like it was much of nothing when it happened. It was just this little thing. And then it wasn't. And a relationship was broken. Or an issue transpired that then you had to deal with. That's how subtle moving from truth to telling a lie is. 
Let me move on from that to John chapter 14, verse 6. Now, I don't know if you remember the interaction that forms the backdrop to this text, but Jesus in his resurrected state is having this conversation with Thomas. I'm sorry, it's prior to his resurrection. He's having this conversation with Thomas, and he, he says to Thomas, I'm going to go away. And Thomas's question then is, well, where are you going to go? Basically what he asks of him, and do we know the way to you? Well, that question makes a lot of sense to ask. You and I might ask that question. But Jesus' answer is a little less than what I would describe, in my opinion, as normal. He simply says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to me but through the Father. You know, he speaks to three ideas here, the way, which is the idea of direction. He talks about the truth, which is in, in its simplest definition is the rea reality right before their eyes, if we were to find it that way. And then finally, he talks about life, basically redefining their view of mortality, that there is this eternal life. Well, I just want to focus on the one aspect of that this morning. I am the truth. We struggle with truth. I do, you do. That's the point I've been trying to make. You know, at our very core, it might just be our desire to be right. Maybe it's we're trying to gain some power, influence, wealth. Whatever the reason is, I would suggest to you that at its root is the self. We're trying to serve ourselves. We have a tendency to morph truth into something that works for us, right? We, we, we struggle with the same things that Adam and Eve have struggled with. Now, what I want to share with you is how God's been working me over during this time of craziness around us. And these three things keep coming to me. I just can't get them out of my mind, so I'm going to dump them in your lap so you can share them with me. Here's what God's been reminding me. When I forget his word, who he is and how he works in just the normal day-to-day -day routine of living, I'm basically disregarding what is true. You know, when I think of all the stuff that's going on around us in the world, the world's not going to fix it. What we're experiencing today is not all that unusual. It's happened in the past, in some cases in far greater ways. Like, did you know that at the end of World War II, 75 years ago, it's not too distant history, 50 million people died in the war itself, military and civilians. But you know, there was another 25 million people that died at the end of World War II because of disease and famine. That's a lot more people than we're talking about in this circumstance we have right here in this country. And yet our country seems to be on the verge of destruction itself. Well, when I forget God's word, I disregard what's true. Second, when I replace God's word with the words of men, I'm denying the truth. You know, Michael's favorite slogan, don't let the world teach you theology. This is that. When I forget, when I replace God's word with the words of men, I'm really denying the truth. What does that mean? It means I'm willing to accept that God has no solutions. That's what it really comes down to for all of us. Well, the third one, when I ignore God's word in the way that I live, I'm really a rebel. And I'm just intentionally rebelling against what is true. Doesn't that make me part of the problem in all of this? Well, I'm haunted by these three things, and how am I supposed to respond to it? Well, I would imagine that one of the reasons that you're here this morning at Stonebridge is because the Bible is central to what we do 
And Michael gets up here every Sunday and breaks it apart. Well, that's a good place to start, and we certainly have spent the last year looking at the Old Testament on a book-by-book basis. But as we've done that, I've sat there listening to Michael, and I've drawn a personal conclusion along the way that I want to see if I can connect with you. I want to be clear on this so I don't say it wrong. We say so often these 66 different pieces of literature that make up our Bible, written in three languages by 40 different people over approximately 1,500 years, we say that, that it comes together into a concise and perfect picture of God's plan across time. Here's what I've drawn a conclusion about. Do we really understand that? Do we really even get it? Can I walk myself through God's overall storyline? And if I did, would I live different? Would it have an impact on me? You know, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Well, for me, the exclusivity of this statement really convicts my heart. How about you? I'm assuming you're thinking yes, or we're done. (laughs) So let's go on from there. Let's explore Jesus' statement, but do it through this view of the storyline of the Bible. Now, for most of us, we'd like that plan to be really obvious, like a straight line from beginning to end that we could just mark all of the points across, got it, I'm done, right? But in reality, isn't it more like a crooked line like our lives? You know, think about it this way. Our lives have ups and downs, high points and low points. And in some way, the events over time that make up our life, our life experiences, if you will, don't they make us who we are? Isn't that part of the story itself, how those parts and pieces fit together? Well, I would suggest that God's story is a little bit like that. It's connected from beginning to end. God accomplishes his plan, but on the surface, it just doesn't appear to be a straight line. You know, recently, Michael interviewed Wayne Grudem on In Context, and I grabbed this quote from Wayne because I think it is relevant to our discussion this morning. Here's something that Wayne says. Jesus never says it's frustrating and difficult to interpret scripture. He assumes that the blame for misunderstanding any teaching of scripture is not placed on the scriptures themselves, but on those who misunderstand or fail to accept it as his written word. Ouch. Pretty direct, almost kind of raw in the way that Wayne delivers it. Now, if you don't know Wayne Grudem, let me just defend him for a moment. He's dedicated his life to studying God's word and understanding the doctrines of God. His work, systematic theology, is used in most Bible colleges and seminaries anywhere in the world. He's a good guy. But it's a pretty direct statement, isn't it? Well, if that's not enough a direct statement, how about we hear it from Jesus? How does Jesus frame this? 
Do you remember Jesus' words after his resurrection with the disciples? It's recorded for us in Luke 24, verse 43. You've heard it from this platform numbers of times. Here's what Jesus says. All things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. This simple phrase, Jesus organizes the Jewish scriptures, puts them in three categories, and then he declares that the entire outline of those scriptures is about him. He says, it's about me. That's what the text tells us. Well, here's something for us to consider. Jesus declared to these men over 2,000 years ago, these men that would carry his gospel to the world, that it was necessary for them to understand how the pieces of scripture fit together. Well, if it was for them, isn't it for us also? Shouldn't that be important for us? Let me go back to that truth idea for just a minute. Funny thing about it, it's a lot simpler than we want to admit that it is. And don't we all need a reminder? I mean, from time to time, we all get off track. Well, I'm not a musician, and the guys up here this morning would tell you that. Uh, but there, I do like music, and there's a song that... I run into on occasion that the lyrics just kind of stick with me because it's pretty simple, and I'm pretty simple that way. I think it's from a group called Casting Crown, so I don't know how popular that is. But here's how the words go. I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody all about somebody who saved my soul. I'm living for the world to see Nobody but Jesus. Wow. What if that was true about us? What if that's who we were? Well, to best understand how the parts and pieces of God's story fit together, I want to start with a big idea called eternity. Now, our minds approach everything with a sense of time. That's the way that God designed us, and time is fixed it's how we interact with life. It's really all that we know about how to put things into context. It's hard for us to grasp that God who created everything, everything we know or ever will, isn't bound by time because he created it. He's in it with us, but at the same time, he's above it. And there's no easy analogy or metaphor to explain this. I'll simply say it has no beginning and no end. Now, Moses is helpful in getting us to see this in God's storyline in, in Psalm 90, which is the, really the only psalm credited with, for Moses to write. And in the first two verses of that psalm, he describes God this way. He is from everlasting to everlasting. You see, Moses credits God with creation, and then he describes the existence of God as this one that has no beginning and no end. In essence, God is alive from the beginning of time, and He'll be alive when time comes to an end. It really is important for us, before we look at God's storyline, to understand he is the creator of time. And he himself is not bound by its limits. Well, in the New Testament, Peter takes Psalm 90, and he uses verse 4 in his day to try and explain this eternity idea to the men and women during his day. And he does that in his second letter in chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Here's what he says about eternity. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, 
and a thousand years as a day. You know, once again, the idea of eternity is forced into this framework of time. Peter simply observes that the, invent, the events of God's plan can't be measured by time. Well, let's talk about our Bible for a minute. If we were to crack open the cover of our Bible and go to the very first chapter in Genesis 1, verse 1, this is what we would see. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Pretty simple idea, right? Well, let me complicate it just a little. If God was creating the heavens and the earth at the beginning of time, then he must have existed before time began, or he couldn't have been there to create it. Does that make sense? Yes, that makes sense. Well, let's go now to the back cover of our Bible and look at the very last chapter of our Bible, John's Revelation. And if we look in John's Revelation, at the very end of it in chapter 22, verse 13, Jesus makes a statement about this framework of time. He says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus was there at the beginning, and he'll be there when time comes to an end, he says. And he uses three analogies to explain it here, which we can't really take apart, but I'd love for you to see the depth of these ideas for just a moment. He takes the Greek alphabet, the first letter and the last letter. Isn't that appropriate if he is the word of God, that he would use language as an analogy? He then takes the idea that there is an order in the world, the principle of order. Everything has a, a first and Alas, the beginning and an end associated with it. Doesn't that take us back to creation, that as the creator, he's the one that creates order to begin with? And then the third is time, the beginning and the end, he as the creator of time. Now, if we look at John's gospel, to add a little more detail to this description, we'll find that John confirms that Jesus was there at the beginning. In John chapter 1, in the first four verses, he begins with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. But John goes a little further. He says Jesus is the actual Word God speaks to bring creation into being. All things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And then thirdly, and most importantly, John says Jesus is the source of life. The text says here in verse 4, in him was life. Do you remember Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, when God makes Adam after he forms him out of the dust? The text there says that he breathes life into him. And at that moment, man becomes a living being. Well, I'm not bright enough to understand the depth of all these things, but I'd make this observation Somehow Jesus was in that breath because John says in him was life. Well, we're, not, we're not finished yet with this concept because I think we need to hear from one of the apostles, Paul. In Colossians 1, 15 through 17, Paul says Jesus created everything we know or ever will. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. We've heard that before, but I want you to pay attention to how he finishes verse 17. He says, all things have been created by him and for him. By him and for him. 
Here's where we get a glimpse of God's multi-point strategy, as I call it. See if you can track with me on this. In a sense, we're a gift from God to Jesus. We were created for him, just as he is a gift to us for our salvation. I mean, these are the kind of ideas that can make your head hurt. So instead of that, let me just beg this question of you. How are you and I doing as a gift to Jesus? What kind of gift are we? Just something to think about. Well, this is the beginning of understanding that Jesus is the central and exclusive theme of God's plan. He's the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. But there's one more element in this plan, and that's the future eternity. For us to understand that, we go back to John's revelation in chapter 21 in the first seven verses to get that picture. John says there will be a new heaven and earth. Verse 1, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and first earth passed away. He also tells us that in this period of the new heaven and the new earth, the future eternity, that God will be among men just like he was in the garden. Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them, and he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. And then he goes on and he says, there will no longer be any death for man. There shall no longer be any death. There shall, shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. How do all these things pass away? Through Jesus Christ, just as he did at the beginning. And he takes that same phrase he uses in John's Revelation in chapter 22, and he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the, and the end. He is the Word of God. This is, grand, this is God's grand design. It's his plan. It's his unfolding drama, and Jesus is the central figure throughout it. I'm just scratching the surface to give us perspective. Now, you've heard Michael mention that there are at least 300 direct prophecies about Christ in the Old Testament, and another 600 allusions to him. We'll leave those 900 passages up to Michael to explain to us someday in the future. But what I would like to expose you to is a quote from Graham Goldsworthy, who's an Australian theologian, that I think puts it into a good perspective. He says, God's revelation in scripture is progressive. It moves by stages from the original promises given to Israel until the fullest meaning of these promises is revealed in Christ, thus Christ and therefore the New Testament interprets the Old Testament. Michael's about to open the New Testament and take us through it and you're gonna hear him speak to how often the Old Testament is the source document that the New Testament writers use to explain Christ. I just ask you to remember this simple idea. With each step we take through the Old Testament, Christ becomes clearer and more visible. Well, Goldsworthy goes on to say this is God's gracious initiative through Jesus Christ to redeem and restore mankind and the rest of creation back to its original intended purpose. Well, back to that crooked line. There are three high points in God's plan that help us see how it's connected together and how the story really unfolds. First is Adam, or the creation of man in God's image. 
Second is Jesus, the God-man, or the second Adam, if you care to refer to him as that, and his voluntary sacrifice. And then third is the return of man to a relationship with God, which leads to an eternity with no end. Now, these three acts of God really form the anchors for knitting the storyline together. If we were to look at Genesis chapter 1 and verses 27 and 28 with that first one, Man alone has the privilege to enjoy a special relationship with God. The text here says God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Man is meant to mimic God. We're supposed to mimic God in who we are. How how do I get there? Well, man alone is charged with the responsibility and has the privilege of ruling over God's creation. Well, isn't ruling what God does? On a much grander scale over eternity and over the universe, we get to mimic God in a smaller way by ruling over something that he has created. The second thing that stands out to me in these two verses is that man is told to fill the earth, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Man is charged effectively with reproducing other men. This, too, is a representation of God's image. You know, God's the creator of life, but God delegates to man the ability to increase in number. This, too, is an example of the image of God in man, life being birthed from a human being. There's a 19th century Lutheran minister from Scotland by the name of Marcus Dodds who frames this up beautifully. I'm not going to read this entire quote, but I do want to point out a couple of things in it. Dodds begins with, man was the chief work of God, for whose sake all else was brought into being. The work of creation wasn't finished until he appeared. All else was preparatory to this final product. That man is the crown and lord of this earth is obvious. Man instinctively assumes that all else has been made for him and freely acts upon this assumption. I don't know about you, but I freely act on that assumption. I do think the world was made for me at times. And I love control. So I kind of relate to Dodd's view. Well, he goes on further, and he kind of describes, you know, in light of how big the universe is, how do we respond? And he lands with David's words. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Dodds finishes his thinking on this by really reflecting on how small man is, how small the earth is in light of the universe in eternity. Well, I would answer his quote with, we're important because we've been created in God's image, not because we are, but because God said it to be so. And I would, I would end this quote with this question. Is it conceivable for you and me? Is it even conceivable that God is at work in us right now for his good pleasure? Well, it doesn't take long for man to betray his maker in this storyline. And in Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, we're introduced to the judgment of man. We've already talked about the sin and God declaring death to man relative to Adam and Eve. Let me just note for a moment the impact of the creation itself, the ground, or if you choose, 
to call it the land. God curses the very ground from which he formed Adam. This text says, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it. By the sweat of your face you shall eat. You see, life becomes difficult for man because the earth as well has been impacted. I love this text. It goes as deep as you will sweat. Some of us more than others, but we all do sweat. And in Nashville in the summer, we probably know that well. Well, going forward, this text says man's going to return to the dust from where he came. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return, verse 19 says. What I'm asking you to notice is the subplot here because it plays into the overall storyline. Follow with me as I try to explain it. God's chosen people will be in search of the land, the perfect land, the land where God lives, the land where there is no more suffering, the land where there is no more death. They'll be searching for that land throughout the biblical narrative. It's a story that crosses the entire Bible. Well, let's move on to that second high point, Jesus the God-man. What about him? Well, simply, in Luke chapter 1, verses 31 through 33, Gabriel says to Mary, this baby she is about to bear is the son of the Most High God, and his kingdom will have no end. Well, this is a direct link to God's promise to David. Look how he frames it here. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. But it's also a link to Moses' Psalm 90 when he talks about God having no beginning or end, everlasting to everlasting. Here, Luke simply says his kingdom will have no end. And again, Paul further explains this and helps us to understand it in his letter to the Philippians in chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. This is a complicated passage and one that deserves really a message of its own. I just want to make an observation from it that uncomplicates it for me. Here's the headline for me. Jesus Christ is God, but chose to be man on our behalf. He is God, but he chose to be man on our behalf. And it leaves me with a question, why did he do it? Well, you know, like, why is this so? Well, if you look into the way that the text is worded, look with me. It says, he emptied himself in verse 6. And then it says, he became obedient to the point of death. Both of those descriptions are voluntary. They weren't forced on him. I'd say he did this to voluntarily complete the plan of God that was put in place before the ages even began. Now Paul fills in the blanks a little further in his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. Paul says God decided these things would happen out of God's mercy and love for us. Why is it that Jesus had to die. It was because of God's mercy and love for us. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. You see, in our dead state, God brought us back to life, Paul says here. And the agent for our resurrection is Jesus Christ. 
Well, what, what did we have to do with it? This text says we had nothing to do with it. It was a gift from God, and it comes to us in the form of faith, for you have been saved through faith, which the writer of Hebrews says is something we can't see, but it's something we know deep down inside in our hearts. When I take these two passages and put them together, I conclude this, God is not bound by time, and yet he enters it with us to accomplish his plan. Pretty amazing stuff that for me is pretty hard to understand. Well, this is that framework, the macro picture of God's plan. It goes from Adam to Christ, from death to life, from the current heavens and earth to the new heavens and earth. And if I could somehow pull myself back and look at it from God's perspective, which I think can be helpful, is that God looks at it from eternity past to eternity future. Remember, he's the God that created time. He's above it and in it. This idea of the past and the present and the future, they're limiting factors for us, but they're not for God. You might want to try and take in this snapshot from God's perspective. As he looks down at this plan, there are no disconnects. There is no time where man's future is not secure in his hands because it's a perfect plan, and it's one that he put in place to be finished. Well, let's take a minute and just go back to that crooked line that I talked about relative to our lives and God's plan. Now, we don't have time to explore examples that flow across that line, but I do want to expose you to two big ideas that help put the Bible as a whole into perspective for us. And the first is God is the judge. Now, I don't know how it is for you, but for many of us, we struggle with that. Because we see in the Old Testament death, you know, even civilizations that you know, God takes away from this earth. Well, I think we don't have a choice but to conclude that there is a common theme running throughout the Bible storyline, that God is the judge over a man's sins. You know, think about it across the timeline. We see it immediately in Genesis in the beginning with his judgment of Adam and Eve. We see it at the flood with mankind being destroyed because of its evil at the Tower of Babel as God disperses man and confuses language. We see his judgment during the captivity of Israel in Egypt and certainly across the years of Israel's history, including the exiles to Assyria and Babylon. And then as the New Testament opens, we see it with the rule of Rome over Jerusalem itself, God's people. And ultimately, God judges the sin of man once and finally with the sacrifice of Jesus. You see, God's plan, his story is a story of a righteous God who judges man's sin. We shouldn't be surprised by events across time where God intervenes with his judgments. But there's something we can't miss. As he does with every judgment, there is a contrasting act of salvation by God. After God destroys the earth with a flood to rid evil, he saves Noah and his family. During the famine in the land, he saves Israel through Joseph. After Israel's enslaved in Egypt, he sends Moses to save them. And through the years of Israel's kings and the many judgments against them, we learn that salvation will come through a future anointed one, Messiah. 
You know, the climax of all this occurs during Rome's rule over Jerusalem, and that's when we hear from John the Baptist, who Jesus calls the voice of Elijah. And here, Messiah comes and finishes God's plan. And for us who believe today, we have the apostles' words throughout the New Testament to give us testimony about Jesus so we can clearly understand him. You see, we come to know God in his way through two opposing forces, judgment and salvation, working together in some mysterious way that's hard for our human minds to fully comprehend. Well, we could explore the storyline of God's word by looking at him as a promise keeper, by looking at God, the word. There's a number of big ideas. Here's what I want to close with. We're going to draw the same conclusion no matter what theme we look at, and that is he has a plan that runs consistent, consistently through time that will not change. He doesn't vary from that plan. And his word, that plan, gives us all we need to live a godly life, no matter what is going on around us. He alone is the absolute truth. There's no deception in him. There's nothing left out that prevents us from living a life that honors him. He hasn't been an absentee landlord. He's not asleep at the switch. And he certainly isn't bound by our simple idea of time. We're reminded often he's not slow to keep his promises. Here's the thing about his plan. It's in process and complete at the same time. And he's given us his word so we can clearly understand what it is he wants us to know. You know, for me, it's always been the same question. Do you believe? Adam and Eve did not. And what's at the root of that? Well, it's a question for us. Do we love him enough to be in his word? Do we love him enough to be in his word so we can live without fear and worry and defeat when the world seems to be under attack around us? You see, with God, it's always been personal. It's always been about a living God desiring a personal relationship with you. Well, back to where we began, my musings about truth. I can't give you an answer whether to wear a mask or not. Whether your kids are going to go to school or not. Or whether society is going to go back to the way it was. But here's what I can tell you. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There's an exclusivity in that statement. It's through him alone. And I imagine that's why this list of three things just haunts me. With all the uncertainty around us, there's suffering and danger and financial ruin. And I, and I have to admit, and for some, they're becoming more wealthy and more powerful and more influential. Both of these things are happening around us. How, how do we make sense of it? Jesus says, turn to me for the truth. That's what this is about, you see, because when I forget God's word, who he is and how he works, I really am disregarding what is true. And that's when the thing comes off the rails because nothing makes sense anymore. We're surprised with every new day and every new event. When I replace God's word with the words of men, 
I'm denying the truth. I'm basically accepting that there are no answers in God's words that are practical for me, that I can put to use today in my life. And when I ignore God's word in the way that I live, as if I could live any way that I want, I'm just a rebel. I'm rebelling against his truth. And I'm as much part of the problem as anybody else is. Well, this is when Michael would say another cheery message from Michael Easley. I'm not going to do that. Here's the good news that I want to give to you. His word is readily available to us. We got more study resources at our fingertips than ever in the history of the world. And by the way, in case I haven't said this, God created time. And we got plenty of it, even though we think we don't. It really is just a matter of priorities. Maybe this is our day to be reminded of that. And in that reminder, to realize that the struggles and the tragedies of this world are no surprises to God. And overcoming them is detailed right in his word. We need it today in the new normal as much as ever. Well, Moses concludes Psalm 90 with a reflection in the last two verses. He says, let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children and let the favor of our God be upon us. He had a clear understanding of the everlasting nature of God. And here's what I would ask you to just take out of that closing thought. Let your work appear to your servants. It's difficult for God's work to appear if we don't know who he is, if we are not in his word. Let your majesty appear to your children. It's difficult for our children to grow if we are not taking them into the word. And maybe by doing so, their generation might be the greatest generation just yet to come. Well, Moses finishes with an attitude of prayer. He says, let the favor of our God be upon us. And here's how I'd leave that with you. He is God. He is with us. And his call this morning for us is to be with him.